This is Ancient Faith Today with Kevin Allen, Orthodox Christian Media's live listener call-in program. Hey Kevin, this is Sarah from Belfast, Ireland. I'm Elena. I am seven years old from Yorba Linda, California. What kind of timeline do you think really is possible to see the Orthodox Church in America come together as some kind of a single unity? Informative conversation about subjects that matter through the lens of Scripture and the teaching tradition of the Eastern Orthodox Church. Join the conversation by calling 1-855-AF-RADIO. That's 1-855-237-2346. And now, here's Kevin. Welcome, and thanks for joining us on Ancient Faith Today. We're media's live listener call-in program on current issues from the perspective of the Eastern Orthodox Church and her holy tradition. And we're streaming live right now, and we'll be opening the lines and taking your calls in about 15 minutes past the hour. And our call screener tonight is Molly. And you'll be able to hear the program through your telephone while waiting. So please turn down your computer when you come on so we don't hear feedback from between your phone and your computer. And the call-in numbers, as the announcer mentioned, and I will repeat them throughout the program, are one eight five five af radio one eight five five. 237-2346. And our chat room is now open as well. Father John Schrodel is moderating the chat room, uh, and you, you'll be able to talk to others uh, as they're listening to the program. And remember, be nice. <laughs> That's our main and courteous and uh, open to others' ideas. And uh, you can find it at ancientfaith.com slash today. And you'll find the link right there on that page. That's ancientfaith.com slash ancientfaithtoday. You can also follow us on Facebook at Ancient Faith Today. And uh, we appreciate your like. That gives us visibility on the internet and exposes the program to others who may not be aware of it. Well, our sponsor tonight is, as usual, Museum Quality Legacy Icons. Check out their website at legacyicons.com. In addition to old world quality and <clears throat> beauty, and I own several legacy icons and have them in my, my prayer room, legacy icons have a lifetime guarantee against fading. And all of our live callers' names tonight will be entered into a drawing for a $55 gift certificate from legacy icons. And you'll be able to choose from legacy's vast collection of historic icons from literally all of the traditional uh, cultures around the world. And we'll announce the name of the winner at the end of the program. If you are announced, if you hear your name, please email us back at aft at ancientfaith.com and we'll give you the access code to use when ordering. Well, our topic tonight, and we will probably go for a full two hours, or at least as long as we have, I still have questions, and you are very valued listeners and callers call in with questions, is on perspectives of the church fathers. Martin Luther said of the church fathers, quote, the more I read the books of the fathers, the more I find myself offended, for they were but men. And to speak the truth, with all their repute and authority, they undervalued the books and writings of the sacred apostles of Christ, unquote. He said that in his table talk, uh, lectures or writings. On the other hand, by contrast, of course, we have Metropolitan Hierotheos Vlachos, one of Orthodoxy's respected contemporary theologians who wrote in a book called The Mind of the Church, quote, we are of the church insofar as we are of the 
the church fathers, unquote. So a couple of some contrasts here that we'll be discussing in addition to who the church fathers are. So we'll be speaking with tonight with two early church scholars about the church fathers. One is a reformed Christian scholar and university professor, and the other is an Orthodox Christian scholar and university professor, both writers. They're both very respectful of and knowledgeable of each other's tradition. We'll be talking about who the church fathers are, what they taught, their significance in the evangelical and Orthodox, well, both reformed and evangelical and Orthodox church traditions, and the impact of their writings today, what they are, what they should be, etc. We'll begin with an overview of the church fathers and who they were, when they, kind of the history of, of them and kind of an overview. Then in the second part of the program, we'll be speaking about the, the Protestant and Orthodox traditions and how they regard the church fathers and other questions related to that. So try to keep in line with the trajectory of the program. It'll, it'll be a little easier for us, but we'll, we'll take your calls at any rate. We, we sure value them and appreciate them. Well, I'm very pleased to welcome my two guests tonight. James R. Payton Jr. is a Reformed Christian. As I mentioned already, he's a history professor at Redeemer University College uh, in Ontario, Canada. And Dr. Payton is also the author of the really very excellent book, Light from the Christian East, published, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, InterVarsity Press. And he's also the editor of the newly released A Patristic Treasury, Early Church Wisdom for Today, published by Ancient Faith Publishing. And you can get that online at the Ancient Faith Publishing or the Concilium Media Store directly. Jim Payton, welcome to Ancient Faith Today. It's so great to have you on. Thank you, Kevin. I'm looking forward to the discussion. Yeah, thanks so, so much. I've really, uh, as Brad said when we were off air, we both appreciate your, your book and your, your, uh, your dialogue uh, within your own tradition about uh, the Orthodox faith and theology. And my guest is Bradley Nassif. And Brad has been my guest before. He's an Orthodox Christian and professor of biblical and theological studies at North Park University in Chicago. He's the author of the 2012 released Bringing Jesus to the Desert, published by Zondervan. And he's the editor of the Philokalia, a classic text of Orthodox spirituality published by Oxford University Press in 2012 as well. He's also a a congregant of Holy Transfiguration, Antiochian Orthodox Church. Uh, the pastor uh, there is Father Wilbur Ellsworth, who'll be my guest, by the way, interestingly how these things connect on December 9th, in Warrenville, Illinois. Bradley Nassif, welcome to Ancient Faith Today. Thank you, Kevin. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, it's, and thank you for all your work. Appreciate uh, both of you and, and what you're interests are and uh, your, your insight tonight. Jim, let me begin with you. You know, I just quoted Martin Luther in the intro where he said, in, in, again, in Table Talk, that uh, the church fathers undervalued the books and writings of the sacred apostles of Christ. So it's a two-part. First, do you agree that the church fathers undervalued the books that became the New Testament? And two, wasn't it a church father to first kind of delimit which books became the New Testament? Um, well, first of all, I don't agree with Luther in this regard, that the Church Fathers undervalued the books that became the New Testament. We know of those books in large part because the Church Fathers talked about them, referred to them 
and, uh, and, and endorse them. Um, and certainly it was the practice of the Church, reading the various books that were available, some of which were by the, the apostles, others that claimed to be by apostles, but the Church had suspicions about. It was that whole process that led eventually to the identification of the, of the New Testament canon, as articulated by Athanasius in the early 300s. Mm. So what do you think Martin Luther was about there with that statement? Was he basically just lumping everything that came in the first, well, we'll talk about when the patristic era was. I don't want to take away that question from one of my guests, but was he basically lumping, in your opinion, just your perspective, everything that came during that era as kind of what he would describe as papist? Well, I, I'm, I'm not sure. It's hard to know in the table talk. I've read the table talk mm. in the past. And these are excerpts of conversations that happened after the meals at Luther, in Luther's home with students mm-hmm. who were living with him and his wife. And it's hard to know when they were written, uh, depending on which collection of writings they're from. But mm. there are other things from Luther, and who, who, was, not often, who was often not consistent uh, in what things he'd say in one year and then might be later on. In 1539, his work on the councils in the church praised the ancient councils and talked about the, the creeds and confessions, the creeds that came out of them, and the work that went into them to defend the Christian faith. Uh, and so it, it's hard to know uh, what, what to mm. say in that regard about this particular quote from Luther. Mm. Well, good. Thanks for that uh, nuance. Appreciate that. I, I don't want to get too black and white on anything. Brad Nassif, when we speak of the church fathers, quote unquote, there, you know, as a general designation, whom are we speaking of? We're speaking of those bishops, theologians, teachers of the faith from Christian antiquity on up to the modern time that bear witness to the apostolic faith. So these are people who the church has regarded as reliable teachers of the uh, Christian faith, and therefore they are authoritative in the church. Hmm. And... Um, I, I will ask you how one gets to be a, a church father just in a minute. But Jim uh, Payton, we often hear the terms, you know, patristic fathers and holy fathers used often interchangeably with church fathers. Uh, do they all mean the same thing? Well, the word patristic is taken from a Latin word for the for father, pater, mm. and it means in general things that came from that from the period of the Church Fathers. Um, I urge my students not to use patristic fathers because it's kind of repetitious. It's like talking right. about <laughs> carnivorous meat eaters or, or <laughs> saying that this is a fat, obese person. Well, you know, patristic already refers to the fathers, but it, it's mm. fairly common to have that happen. Um, I'm not as clear when people use holy fathers uh, always what they're referring to because sometimes in, in the Roman Catholic tradition, I, I suppose in the Orthodox tradition as well, it might be used for people outside of that that patristic era that we usually associate that we usually associate with church fathers. Hmm. Brad, you want to respond to that Brad, one? You know, Just clarify. Uh, no, I think uh, that's quite right. Um, it is redundant to say patristic fathers. You're saying two thing, two words for the same thing. What about holy fathers? Does that generally refer back to the to the the fathers, the patristic writers? Yes, it does, and it doesn't include just the theologians. It includes the mystics of the Church and gotcha. the saints of the Church. Okay. Brad Nassif, what is the significance, and this is a, a big question, uh, 
be, be clear, but you know, we, we got to keep moving. What is the significance of the church fathers in the Orthodox tradition? And how would you say that their legacy has and is affecting the Eastern Orthodox Church? And before you answer that, I just, I, I quoted uh, Hierotheos Vlachos who said, we are of the church insofar as we are the holy, uh, of the church fathers, number one. But practically speaking, most Orthodox in the pews aren't familiar with the writings of the church fathers at all. So what does a quote like that even mean? Kind of, again, in terms of the overall legacy of the church fathers in the Orthodox tradition and church. Well, I think one way of going about this is to make a contrast between the way the fathers are taught in a university and the way they are taught in the church. Mm. In the university, the fathers are often referred to, rather than fathers, you would have a course, let's say, on the history of Christian thought. But in the Orthodox tradition, especially in our seminaries and colleges, we refer to them as church fathers because the term father itself implies tradition. And tradition is, of course, the ongoing life of the Holy Spirit in the Church. So when we're talking about the fathers of the Church, we're talking about uh, those uh, authoritative teachers that the Church has recognized as bearing witness to the faith. Now, there are basically three areas, I would say, that the Church fathers um, speak to most directly. The first, of course, is in the area of theology. There, the uh, fathers are the carriers of the apostolic faith. For example, in Nicaea, the formulation of the Trinity there in the Second Ecumenical Council in Constantinople in 381, St. Basil the Great, the Cappadocian fathers, all defined for us the uh, meaning of the Holy Trinity and the Nicene Creed. So uh, that's one area. All the seven ecumenical councils, of course, are deeply influenced by the theological mind of the uh, chorus of church fathers. So theologically, uh, that's one area. The second area, of course, is in the area of Christian living or spiritual life. Here the fathers never separated doctrine from life. Doctrine in life or dogma in life are two ways of expressing the same lived reality. So uh, in the spiritual life of the church, theology is supremely doxological. It's not simply uh, intellectual formulation of the faith. It is a glorification of God through reflection on God through the use of right words. Mm. And the third way, of course, is in the worshiping life of the Church, where all theology goes. And honestly, I don't think anybody can really understand what the, who the fathers are if they do not immerse themselves in the uh, weekly life of the Church and the liturgical cycle of the church. So uh, the best way to understand the mind of the fathers is to expose oneself to the worshiping life of the church. And just, just to follow up on that, Brad Nassif, I mean, um, we hear the divine liturgy of St. John Chrysostom, one of the great church fathers, and his liturgical uh, rubrics every, every, just about every Sunday, right? Yes, although I will say that probably most of the liturgy that's named after St. John Chrysostom isn't probably by him, although the uh, Eucharistic canon certainly is. Uh, it was attributed to St. John uh, after his death uh, uh, several centuries later. Uh, okay. So it's not exactly correct to say that uh, John Chrysostom wrote the liturgy, although he is attributed to it. Oh, good. Thanks for correcting me on that. I appreciate that. And, and please correct me whenever my question or something I say is wrong, because you're, you're the experts. Jim okay. Payton, uh, what about the significance of the church fathers, you know, in the greater 
Protestant tradition. I, I mean, I'm aware of the fact that, you know, the magisterial reformers, if you will, and later John Wesley made use of the teachings of the church fathers, but it was in a pretty selective way, wasn't it? Maybe talk a little bit about that as, as you can. Okay. Um, I, certainly the magisterial reformers, Luther, Calvin, Swingley, Melanchthon, Bootser, the, the big names that, are, that appear in, in books on the history of the Reformation, um, made wide use of the Church Fathers. As a matter of fact, Martin Bootser, the reformer of Strasbourg, had a standing offer to the, his Roman Catholic opponents to debate any point of Protestant teaching and practice without reference to Scripture, just by using the Church Fathers. So mm-hmm. that they, they looked on them very positively. And did they read them selectively? Probably, uh, in the sense that, uh, that all of us, when we read something, read it with a certain background of concerns and interests. Uh, I think they tried not to twist it, but you know that that depends on 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 a number of of assessments. You know, but they they were they were finding in the church fathers that were being republished in their time in in editions by by Erasmus especially um, support for things that they were, had come to uh, affirm as over against what they'd found in the in the medieval tradition of the of the Roman Catholic Church. But it, it probably did end up being selective in, in certain ways, and and led to some. Uh, uh, it led them to some statements such as what what Luther said uh, in mm-hmm. reaction things found in Gregory Pope Gregory the First Gregory the Great, right? Um, but and and Wesley, I, I've I've learned this more from some from some friends who are Wesleyan or Methodist. Um, the West, uh, John Wesley ended up using the Church Fathers more than had been the, pack, the pattern in, in uh, the preceding couple of generations, and he relied especially on the Greek Church Fathers, so I'm told by my, by my Methodist friends. Um, but, but again, he read them in, in ways that, mm-hmm. that sat well with, with what his emphases and concerns were, I'm, you know, I'm sure. Right, and and we're going to have a show in 2014 on the very interesting uh, uh, conversation, if you will, between uh, the Tübingen scholars, the the Reformed scholars in Tübingen, Germany, and the Ecumenical Patriarch. So there was contact between an actual dialogue back and forth. So so that's going to be uh, very very interesting. So so uh, yeah, please uh, jump in. Jump in there for a second, please. I, I wanted to uh, also note uh, that the, the fathers, the contribution of the fathers you know, from an historical point of view is that they are the ones that were most responsible for defining the very meaning of orthodoxy then and now. It was the contributions of the ecumenical theologians and teachers of the faith that uh, helps us to understand the very meaning of historic Christian faith. Um, and this meaning is not the exclusive property of the Eastern Orthodox Church. This belongs to the Catholic tradition, the Roman Catholic tradition, to the historic Protestant tradition. I won't say the same is true for modern theology. Modern theology, it depends who you're talking to and about to make that distinction, but historic Protestantism and historic Catholicism, bracketing the classical problems that we have between us, uh, the fathers are the common inheritance of all Christians, uh, who claim historic Christian faith. Now, we'll mm. discuss the details and so forth, but I think it's a mistake to see these as belonging exclusively to the Eastern Church. This, uh, The Great Fathers are the fathers of all Christians who adhere to historic Christian faith, to the extent that they do. Mm. And I have a call uh, holding. Uh, John, 
Just give us one more minute. I want to uh, announce our lines. The lines are now open officially. And the call-in lines are one eight five five af radio one 237 2346 Our call screener is Molly this evening. You'll want to tell her what your question is. Step away from the, um, from the computer so that uh, we don't get feedback. And John from Maryland, uh, are you on? I am here. Great. I Good evening. How are you? Good. Good. How are you? Doing very, very um, well. Good. Uh, welcome to our to our guest, uh, our reformed guest there, especially, and to all of you. Um, I had a question about um, about what uh, Luther and Calvin thought um, of. Obviously, they believed in justification by faith alone, and as I understand it, and I could be wrong, John Chrysostom. Luther, especially, was not fond of John Chrysostom because he wrote against the idea of, of uh, justification by faith alone. Um, just um, I was wondering what what insight you guys can shed on, first of all, what Chrysostom's view of that idea, um, what do you call it? So, so, Sola fide. Sola, Sola fide. fide. That's it. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Kevin. Um what was what did Christian actually think of Sola Fide? We know what the performers thought of it. Um, and then, if Christian was against Sola Fide, like I think he, he was, how do the um, Protestant fathers, uh, you know, what do they do with that? Great. Who would like to begin with that one? Well, I defer to my uh, Reformed expert. Okay, Jim Payton. Okay. <laughs> I'll, I'll jump in and, and, and in due course then turn it back to uh, to Brad for okay. further comments on John Chrysostom. Okay. Um, with regard to the, the reaction against John Chrysostom on the part of Luther, um, Luther was certainly very critical of anything that, that made too much of works uh, on the one hand. So he was not against criticizing the book of James very strongly. And as a matter of fact, in the German Bible, he put it just before the book of Revelation, hoping that people right. wouldn't get that far. <laughs> uh, so it, it, he wanted them to be well-versed in what he thought was this important point. The other, the other side of it is, though, that for John Calvin, his second most favorite church father was John Chrysostom. So he cited him regularly. And uh, what, what actually comes across in the writing of the, of the, of the Reformers is that while they say we are justified by faith alone, Faith is never alone. Faith always seeks to work and serve and so on, and, and to love God. Um, and so the, the sola fide emphasis that's become known in evangelicalism or Protestantism at large, as if all you have to do is believe and then things are fine, is something reformers all repudiated. Even Luther, uh, in, in his careful moments, was very careful to say, of course, faith lives and serves and works. But when people got tied faith and works too quickly together, uh, he got very he got very concerned. You mentioned Calvin's um, first favorite church father, if you don't mind me asking Jim Payton who, who that was. Was that uh, Augustine? That was Augustine. That yeah, was Augustine, Augustine, and then Chrysostom right. after him. Okay, great. Great. John, thank you very much for your call. Does that answer your question sufficiently? Um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm just wondering... Um, to I, I was a little confused. I I thought Calvin said, and correct me if I'm wrong, that the 
the foundation of Christianity, I can't remember the wording, falls on this concept of sola fide. Am I getting that quote right? He, he called it the hinge. Close enough, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and but, um, but again, but I've I've written a, a, another book that has not been referred to, but it's called "Getting the Reformation Wrong," and and in that I try to address about a dozen different ways in which we Protestants have misunderstood what the Reformation actually said and what the Reformers emphasized. And one of them was was this one. Certainly, they they talk about justification by faith alone as the this, the the article of the standing and falling church. That do we rely entirely on on the mercy and grace of Christ for our salvation, uh, which, which we embrace by faith. But then, as I point out in the chapter on, on sola fide, this argument, um, all the Reformers insist that true faith always ends up in works. They just don't want them blended uh, into, uh, into an amalgam, they say, that, that is offered to God. Uh, they, they say that, that should be the offering of faith, which leads then into a, a life of service and love. Hmm. Okay. And Brad Nassif, okay, I, would you like to add anything um, to this conversation with John from Maryland with regard to uh, St. John Chrysostom and, and that issue? On the issue of justification by faith, of course, um, his commentary in the homily in Romans, chapter 3, is the place to look for that, one of the places, uh, probably the best place. And uh, there... He actually says, um, and he explains what, it is he, what he means by this, he says, to declare his righteousness. What is declaring of righteousness? This is Chrysostom speaking. He says, like the declaring of his riches, not only for him to be rich himself, but also to make others rich. So also is the declaring of his righteousness, not only that he is himself righteous, but that he does also make them that are filled with the putrefying sores of sin, suddenly righteous. Now, what does he mean by that? Basically two things. God declares us righteous and makes us righteous. Both of those things seem to be in Chrysostom's mind. Now, it's not fully developed beyond that, and the Eastern Fathers don't develop it in the same line as Luther exactly did, but uh, with the forensic and legal aspects, but it's clearly there that Luther sees, I'm sorry, Chrysostom sees that righteousness is both declaratory and uh, experiential. Hmm. John, we're going to have to let you go. We've got to take a break. Thanks a lot. Great question. Thank you. Thank, thanks for your call. Appreciate it. And I am speaking with two eminent patristic scholars this evening. I'm speaking with James R. Payton, Jr. and with Bradley Nassif. And the numbers are one eight five five af radio one eight five five two three seven two three four six. And we are about at break time, so we'll take a short break. We'll come back, and the lines are wide open. Give us your your questions about the Church Fathers, about how they're viewed from the Evangelical, Reformed, Protestant, Episcopal, et cetera, et cetera, viewpoint, and, of course, Orthodox, and we'll we'll, uh, uh, distribute them to our uh, two scholars this evening. Thanks, and stay with us. Ancient Faith Today with Kevin Allen will be back in a moment. In the meantime, we invite your calls at 1-855-AF-RADIO. That's 1-855-237-2346. This is an Ancient Faith Radio public service announcement. 
Can we revive today the spirit of love and giving for which the early church was known? The upcoming 2013 Orthodox Institute for Continuing Education in the Faith aims to answer that question. The conference, titled Blessed is the Kingdom, Acts 2.42 and Today, will introduce participants to the themes, people, and issues of the first centuries that influenced how the followers of Jesus Christ became church. Among the presenters are Mr. Nicholas Chakos, Executive Director of Focus North America, Mr. Joseph Cormos, Director of Parish Development Ministry for the Metropolis of Pittsburgh, and Mr. Kevin Allen and Father Stephen Freeman of Ancient Faith Radio. The keynote speaker is His Eminence Bishop Savas of Pittsburgh, whose keynote address will be The Spirit of Giving in the Early Church. The dates of the event are October 31st through November 3rd, 2013, and the venue is the Antiochian Village. For further information, please go to www.antiochian.org slash OI2013. Registrations will be accepted beyond the due date. This has been a public service announcement of Ancient Faith Radio. Within every heart is a hidden garden. We can neglect it until the weeds take over and the flowers wither and die. Or, with the help of Christ, we can care for it and make it a place of beauty, grace, and joy. Introducing The Hidden Garden by Jane G. Meyer, a colorful book for children to help us open the gate to Christ and tend the garden of our heart with loving care. The Hidden Garden is available now at conciliarpress.com. That's conciliarpress.com. are open for your call. The number is 1-855-AF-RADIO. That's 1-855-237-2346. Here once again is Kevin Allen. Well, welcome back to this evening's program. You're listening to Ancient Faith Today on Ancient Faith Radio. And my guests are James R. Payton Jr. and Bradley Nassif, both uh, patristics scholars, early church history, and church fathers experts, uh, both theologically and historically. They've both written about the church fathers, and they come from different perspectives. One is Reformed, one is Orthodox, but they're very familiar with each other's traditions and very sympathetic. And uh, we have some calls coming in. We'll get to them fairly soon, as soon as our producer puts them on for me to take a look at them. And our numbers are one eight five five AF Radio one eight five five two three seven two three four six. Brad Nassif, um, how does how did one get to be a quote church father? How does one get that designation? I mean, obviously not everyone who wrote about Christianity in antiquity um, is a church father, right? So, what are the qualifications for that designation? Well, I think from the perspective of the literature itself, and from the history of the church itself that we have no formal criteria by which one becomes a father. Now, Johann Quasten, though, a Roman Catholic scholar, an excellent Roman Catholic patristic scholar, in the volume one of his famous patrology gives us four criteria, antiquity, holiness of life, orthodox teaching, and ecclesiastical approval. And I would say that those are all true. But the problem with it is that it it imposes upon the life of the church a structure that never, in fact, formally existed. In other words, there was no checklist by which these four things occurred. Mm. What happened was that uh, the fathers became fathers rather dynamically, organically, 
and in the overall living of the church, their function in the church and their reception, especially by the church, is what eventually uh, gives them the honor of becoming a father. So sort of kind of like becoming a saint in the church, if you will. That's right, exactly. Yeah, okay, gotcha. Um, Jim Payton, in fact, weren't there, you know, quite a lot of what might be called, you know, spurious uh, writings that were attributed to apostles, you know, gospels. You've got the Gospel of Thomas. You've got, you know, uh, various others that I'm just not uh, calling up into my mind at the moment um, that were rejected by some of the church fathers because of their lack of, quote, apostolicity. Yes, there certainly were. The Gospel of Thomas, uh, Irenaeus, for example, in the 180s, specifically refers to the Gospel of Truth, naming that one, but referring to a number of others that he said were to be rejected. There were, he, he argues strongly there were only four Gospels, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, and, but he, he notes that, that many others had purported to write, had claimed to write, uh, to have books that were supposedly written by the apostles that passed off under their names some apocalypses, some letters, and so on. But uh, the Church was pretty careful about trying to distinguish them from the genuinely apostolic writings. Now, being a Reformed Christian personally, and also a patristic scholar, and this is a follow-up to you, Jim, and then Brad, you can jump in as well. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, Protestants in general have a problem with, quote, tradition, unquote. So I'm not trying to trap you here or trick you into by, by asking you this question, but how do you personally, um, how, how do you think about the question then of before the canon of what became the New Testament was actually, you know, um, derived, and we talked about St. Athanasius as being one of the first to, lim- to identify those Gospels. Um, what was what were the what would the criteria for apostolicity, that is fealty to the apostolic tradition, have been uh, before the canon of the New Testament, which is now used as primarily the only criteria of truth by you know modern uh, Protestant Christians? What, what did they base their criteria on? Well, I, I think, you know, speaking as a, as a Reformed Christian or Protestant myself, uh, that, that that's one of the weak spots in the, the kind of cavalier dismissal of tradition that so often is, is heard in, in some Protestant circles or evangelical circles. Um, the very earliest trace of a New Testament work we have is from the early 50s, from what probably one of Paul's letters, the first letter to the Thessalonians. There may be a scrap of the Gospel of Mark as early as 46, but... In those intervening years, at the very least, there was no written document that was, that was in, in, in the New Testament. Uh, it was passed on orally, and so very definitely that's passed on by oral tradition. And uh, so one of the things that I hope Protestants are increasingly coming to recognize is that the apostolic tradition was the faithful handing on of the message from, from Christ through the apostles to the followers in the history of the Church, um, and that in due course, as Irenaeus puts it, the apostles write down part of that apostolic tradition, and it's called the script, what we call later the New Testament Scriptures. Hmm. But that, that is a, a challenge, because when, when, I, when I mentioned in my classes, for example, to students who are largely from a, from a Protestant background, 
I say that, you know, when when the early church started working, it didn't refer to the New Testament. It wasn't there. There, there were no writings, and that, that's a jolt for them if they've never thought about how you get from Christ's death to the New Testament canon. Right. Right. Brad Nassif, please. Yeah. Well, I think this is a real, uh, a real watershed between the Orthodox and the Protestant tradition in its modern form, particularly in evangelical evangelicalism, because I think if we accept, as the Orthodox do, the hermeneutical, the interpretive grid through which Irenaeus refuted the Gnostics, that you have in the second century the most important, I would say the second century is probably the most important century in the entire Christian history outside of, of course, the the apostolic age. And the reason I say that is because uh, Irenaeus dealt with the problem of of the criteria of the canon, or rather the criteria of the faith. The Gnostics that you referred to, of course, had uh, taught that their faith was passed down, their knowledge, their secret knowledge was passed down individually and in a secret manner. It wasn't public, it was person to person, privately, and the Gnostic knowledge that we have within us, this spark of divinity that at the time of death will wing its way back to God and all the Gnostic uh, variations, this uh, this fundamental error that uh, Irenaeus refutes is done by an appeal to the Church's rule of faith. And what is the rule of faith for him? The rule of faith was a very briefly worded, flexible summary of the apostolic faith that was enshrined in the liturgical life of the Church, its baptismal life, as well as what he called uh, the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So for Irenaeus, the rule of faith, the tradition, becomes the criteria uh, for checking Gnostic Gospels and any other deviant beliefs of the Gnostics. Now, why is this important? Well, uh, it's the rule of faith is important for three reasons today. Uh, one, it provides a standard for the proper interpretation of Scripture. Now, here's where Orthodox and Evangelicals, uh, evangelicals are better than they used to be, that's for sure in the last 15, 20 years due, I think, largely to uh, Robert Weber at Wheaton. But uh, it provides a standard for interpreting Scripture, so the tradition of the Church is critical. And secondly, the interpretation is not a private matter, Irenaeus says, but a matter for the whole Church. Mm. Now that's directly against Gnostic doctrine, so it's an ecclesial event. And then the third point I would make is that Irenaeus' teaching does not claim to be exhaustive of the Church's faith. For example, he says very little about the sacraments. That doesn't mean they're not important. It just means that he didn't need to say much about them beyond what he did. So you add it all up, in the Orthodox mind, the Church is the cr- criteria of the canon. And it's the, I should say it more accurately, it's the life of the Holy Spirit in the Church that may, that recognizes the canon of Scripture. Mm-hmm. And that's why, for Orthodoxy, uh, the interpretation of the Bible uh, is never ultimately a, a, a personal matter. It's mm-hmm. always an ecclesial event, a community event. Now, I, just as a follow-up to that, either of you can respond to this. I, I've heard various uh, contemporary uh, and, you know, 19th century, 20th century Protestant writers say that, look, you know what? Oral tradition was great in the first three centuries, you know, before the canon, but now that we have the scriptures, we don't need any of this stuff. How do, how would either of you respond to that? 
We got all we we got all we need in the Bible. We have all we need in the Bible. Well, you see, the problem isn't the problem is a couple of things. Number one, how did we get the Bible we believe in? And of course, the answer is we 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 the Bible was given to us through God in the life of the church, and so the church itself recognized the canon and identified which books belonged and which books did not belong. And they did so by a prior canon of truth. The canon was the, there was a canon before the canon, if if I may put it that way. And the canon was the apostolic faith, which the church inherited, and which the church used to determine whether or not a given book in the Bible um, belonged there. So to say we don't need the, the the church anymore, we have the Bible now, is simply historically naive. Mm. Jim Payton, you want to respond to that? I, I, I would affirm what he what he has said then that. To, to say that we can just grab the Bible and speak appropriately from it is historically naive, and it's probably psychologically naive as well. We're always shaped by our culture and background and influence, and not to be interpreting the Scripture from within the, the, the bosom of the Church is almost certainly to probably misunderstand it. Right, although we may, <clears throat> excuse me, we, we, we three may be, using the word church in, in different ways, but, but I acknowledge and accept that, and I, that, that would be a subject for another day. Brad, Brad Nassif, um, when was the historical era of the church fathers or the patristic era? From when to when is it generally thought of as having spanned? Well, most people say it's the first five centuries or the first eight centuries. And the reason why they say that is because uh, the history of theology, particularly in the medieval West, took a change after the St. John of Damascus and you entered into a new phase. Uh, a few centuries later, it became known as the Scholastic Period. However, in the Christian East, it continued on, but Orthodox, even good Orthodox students today, and people I hear say, well, the Fathers ended in with John of Damascus. Now, I think this is a misguided uh, approach to the fathers because what it does is it imposes a periodization on the fathers that, in fact, never existed. In other words, what you can do is you can point to plenty of fathers after St. John of Damascus. Uh, For example, St. Simeon, the new theologian in the 10th century, and uh, St. Gregory Palamas in the 13th century, and many others. Uh, So to say that the fathers have a beginning and an ending point is an artificial imposition on the on the uh, on the fathers hmm. i love to illustrate it uh, very well because you see the fathers are not dead they are alive and those of us today who carry that tradition there's a story uh, if i can you know might mean tell can i tell you a story about john sure. about father george florovsky florovsky was a very great patristic scholar he taught all over the world especially at Harvard and Princeton and places like that. He was a great mind. Um, well, one day, Florovsky was in one of these World Council of Church meetings and was bearing witness to the faith and interacting primarily with Protestant theologians. And he frequently referred to the fathers. Well, in one occasion, uh, a lady stood up and said to Father George, Father George, why do you keep talking about the fathers? The fathers, the fathers, the fathers. They're dead. We live in the modern world. Forget the fathers. Why do you keep talking about them? And to that, Father George replied, Madam, he says, the fathers are not dead. I'm still alive. <laughs> you get the point. 
In other words, yeah. the fathers live on in me right. and in those who likewise carry the tradition. Right. So the whole notion of the fathers in the Orthodox tradition is a living concept. It's not a dead one. Okay, and I have a call from uh, Michael from Atlanta. Michael, good evening. Are you there? Yes, I'm here. So my question for you gentlemen tonight is uh, many modern Christian groups have a huge historical blank in their memory. Um, They don't know much about history. They study the book of Acts. Maybe they mention Luther or Calvin or someone a couple generations removed from them every couple years. But their big assumption is that their version of the Christian faith is correct. And I once believed this until I tried to find the same set of beliefs that I grew up with and had, and had embraced. Um, I tried to trace that back to the apostles. Like, where were the people that believed what I believe now? Uh, did they exist uh, anywhere outside of today? Well, I found no such writings that supported uh, those types of beliefs that I had grown up with. Uh, and many times these types of groups explain this absence of evidence in history Uh, They explain it uh, by saying there was a great falling away. Uh, There was only a persecuted minority, just as in ancient Israel there was always a persecuted remnant that was faithful to Yahweh. Uh, They explained this by saying, you know, the Roman Catholic Church or the Catholic, the Orthodox, the great church persecuted the true believers, and therefore they couldn't leave any evidence of you know, the the true faith. So that's why we can't find anything in history that matches exactly what we believe today. Is there any historical merit whatsoever? Uh, I, I mean, is it possible that if, if that's true, that these persecuted minorities wouldn't have left no evidence? And if so, how did how did we get the scripture if, if the great church uh, was persecuting the, the people that truly believed? Why would they not have destroyed the scriptures? I guess that's hmm. Kind of, is there any historical merit to that great falling away theory, which I also was, I was dumbfounded when I was listening to a podcast on Mormonism, how similar the, the, the Mormons and that idea uh, go together with the Mormon theology. Sorry. Mm. Great, great question, Michael. Thanks for that. Who would like to respond to that one first? I'll go ahead and try. As, as a Protestant, I recognize Jim that Payton. kind of argument in, in, in part. Um, as a historian, that argument is just way too convenient. Um, there, there's, there's nobody, there, there's no evidence for this because the, the big church took, took it away. Well, that, that, that just doesn't hold water. Uh, I've read some books in that vein, and, and uh, some, of the, some of the groups through which it, the, the supposed tradition is of, of the true believers who were persecuted are, are taken uh, are some pretty extreme groups that end up in, in heretical notions. Um, I think it's true uh, to, to when, when you say that there are there's a, a large historical amnesia that a lot of Protestant Christians, especially in North America, seem to have, or evangelical ones, uh, that they they're just not aware of the earlier history of the church, and and when it becomes a shock to discover that what they grew up with, thinking must be the the true faith. Um, was not taught in, in prior centuries, at least with some pretty desperate measures, such as the ones you've described. Yeah, and the Mormons are big on that theory that uh, the, the, the church fell away. And, you know, my response when I've heard that is, 
Have you ever read the church fathers? I mean, we've got church fathers that are writing in, and please correct me if I'm wrong, uh, like St. Ig, uh, Ignatius of, of Antioch, and we've got the Didache, if that's how it's pronounced, in the first, uh, first century, no? Yeah, we, we sure do. We, we have the writings of the church fathers before the persecution, and uh, they, they, you can easily compare those with what is held by some of these groups that make such claims, and it becomes pretty, pretty evident pretty quickly that, that the, the claims made by our contemporaries uh, don't really hold water, even in that period before the persecutions came to an end, and, and the, the, the bigger, the great tradition supposedly started stepping in and giving difficulty to what are alleged to be the true believers. Mm. So as a, as a Protestant, I have no patience with that, but I periodically run into it. Sure. Uh, Brad Nassif, do you want to respond to that, uh, that area from uh, Michael from Atlanta? Well, I think um, a lot of it would depend on what belief he had in mind, because it sounded like he had something particular. But uh, the, uh, the answer, I think, that Jim gave would be mine as well. Okay. Michael, do you have a particular uh, tradition or teaching that you're referring to in specifics? Uh, well, particularly, I, I grew up as a Baptist, and it was a very strong doctrine that baptism is only proper, properly administered to a believer, an adult believer. So I was struck uh, when I didn't find that idea uh, mm-hmm. really in the second or third centuries, and that's that's really what kind of turned my theological world upside down. Uh, if, if this was the truth, why is there no evidence in history? of anyone really practicing this. Right. Great, great mm-hmm. question. I think Jim would have a lot to say probably about the infant baptism and the Reformed tradition in the early Church. Uh, how do you see it, Jim? Yeah, I, you end up with, with differing information in, in, the, in the earliest Church. Um, Gregor Nazianzen encourages, Gregor the theologian encourages uh, parents to have their children baptized when they're young, and then suggest, you know, very young as infants virtually, and then he suggests, well, maybe you should wait till you're, till you're about three years old. Uh, he himself was only baptized in his adulthood, so there was there's a mixed bag of, of a mixed pattern it seems of, of when the baptism might be applied. But I, from my research and in, in work in Irenaeus, he refers to uh, people who were regenerated in their infancy. Uh, and the term regeneration is usually associated with the, the waters of baptism. So Irenaeus seems to be pointing toward the practice of infant baptism um, already by, you know, as, as common in his time. And he was very strong in emphasizing we should do nothing and practice nothing other than what we received right. from the apostles down through the tradition. And Origen says later on that um, the practice of infant baptism is something we've received from the apostles. Uh, so that certainly adults, uh, converts, were baptized. Uh, those who came in through the catechumenate were baptized as adults and so on. But uh, the, the practice of infant baptism is attested very early uh, in these pre... well, in, in writings that are there long before uh, any... before the uh, the big church came along and, and long before the persecutions ended that were hounding the church uh, during the, during the uh, Roman era. Michael, i got to let you go. i got another call coming in. Great question. Thanks a lot for calling. Thanks so much. Okay, you bet. Thanks for listening. 
Uh, just a follow up to that, and then I've got uh, Joseph from New York calling. We've got lines open. The number is one eight five five AF Radio one eight five five two three seven two three four six. Our subject tonight is perspectives of the church fathers. Um, there's a pretty good consensus here about the church fathers, but we do have our guests, James R. Payton Jr. and Bradley Nassif coming from different Christian traditions, one Reformed, one Orthodox. So we're having some interesting uh, nuances and uh, of differences, but uh, a, a pretty good consensus overall. Um, follow up to that, Jim Payton. Um, it seems to me that the, that the lens through which especially, you know, um, the Anabaptists um, would view this issue, um, but all really all the reformers would be again uh, the, the hinge that I believe Michael earlier called in about, or somebody. I'm sorry, I'm for, might be forgetting his, his name, but the earlier caller rather called in about, and that is the sola fide. Mm-hmm. That is that one must be old enough to have true faith in order for the baptismal right to be effective because obviously it doesn't have effect without faith since sola fide is the hinge on which, well, it's actually justification is a hinge on which, but sola fide is is a key issue. You want to respond to that real quick? Sure, real quickly. Um, Both Luther and and Swingley and Calvin and the other magisterial reformers all endorsed infant baptism, the baptism of the the children of the infants. Oh, really? Even, Even Zwingli? Yeah, Swingley did as well, and that's part of what led to the to the tension between him and the Anabaptists that arose in, in Zurich. Okay. Uh, so that so that the people who were associated there had that that's where it, it first kind of broke out among them uh, as far as the the need for having an what they considered to be a, an adult baptism. Okay. But what I put out to my to the students in my church history class because we have a number of Baptists there who wrestle with this issue as well in the up in the second semester of the church history class is that Anabaptists did not practice believer's baptism, they practiced disciples' baptism. That is, it wasn't just a matter of making a profession of faith and then getting baptized, but you had to show by your life, by your living, by your love, by your that you were a mm. genuine disciple, mm. and only then could you be baptized. So it's not the pattern that is sometimes claimed by, let's say, by Baptist churches in the present day, where you, you come to a profession of faith, and in short order you end up getting baptized. That, that was mm. not the Anabaptist pattern at all. Oh, great. Thank you. I learned something. Good, good, good. That's uh, excellent. Excellent. Appreciate that. Uh, I have Joseph from New York, who's been online for uh, several minutes. Joseph, good evening. Good evening. Um, Hi. Yeah, thanks for taking my call. Um, Sure. So, uh, yeah, I'm I'm a baptized um, Presbyterian, and just a few months ago, I started reading into the history of, of, of Christianity, taking some few classes. I was just so surprised at the lack of lack of um, lack of credit a lot of times given to, especially the early, very early part of uh, Christian history and the fathers, et cetera, et cetera. And I hope I'm able to formulate my question clearly, and I hope I'm not reiterating what previous callers might have saying, uh, said. But my my specific question, I guess, for the um, for the um, the Protestant. Speaker would be just you know when you when you take a close look as an educated evangelical um, a scholar at, at some of the early church writings, especially those ones within the first three or four hundred years, and when you see such clear indications of doctrines such as you know um, the real presence and the physical unity of the church, the apostolic succession, 
and those kinds of things. And then when you get to, you know, the Nicene Creed and the things such as like the one holy Catholic and apostolic church, which, you know, at the time was clearly meant as sort of a physical oneness and not a spiritual oneness and those kinds of things. How do you, how do you deal with that as a Western scholar? And I'd welcome um, um, the other speaker too, if they have anything to say about that um, um, to jump in. Um, thank you very much. Thank you, Joseph. And of course, that's that's a key question. Um, the, the question is how do you how how do you uh, uh, sync, if you will, or uh, uh, synchronize, you know, kind of reformed thinking on doctrines and ideas, especially ecclesiology, church ideas that came after the 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 first millennium when the church was effectively one. So so uh, Jim Payton, what do you what do you do with that? Um, I, I think a, a couple things need we can distinguish them a bit. One is to distinguish between what the Reformers actually did and the Reformed Confessions say about such matters as, as the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper, uh, and what we actually practice. I think what has become the common practice in much of evangelicalism, including the Reformed tradition, is that the Lord's Supper is a, is a memorial uh, in which we do the remembering, mm-hmm. and that's, that's how the grace comes to us. That is not found in any of the Reformed or Lutheran confessions whatsoever. All of them talk about a genuine reception of Christ somehow by the work of the Holy Spirit, but that we receive his body and blood. But it, it's, it's been a, a default, it's been a fault of us in the Protestant traditions that we've fallen away from that rich ancient heritage practice, uh, ancient church practice of emphasizing, you know, that. Yes, we, in the Lord's Supper, we receive the body and blood of Christ unto our spiritual nourishment and to our comfort. So I think part of the problem is that, that we have fallen short of our own, you know, Protestant standards in that regard and, and uh, are not living up to them, and we're often, we often operate without a, a, a close acquaintance with them. Uh, I think that's one of them. The other one, uh, I've forgotten the other topic that he brought up was... Apostolic was, uh, succession and one church... You know, when you when you read the early fathers and you see these things, and they don't really apply to the thirty six thousand denominations that Gordon Cornwall right. Seminary says there are. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I I think we we that we in the in the Protestant tradition, with all these multiplied thousands of denominations of us, uh, have to recognize that that copy that reference to the to the invisible church is a cop out. Uh, Christ was not talking about that in John 17 when he when he said that we should be one so that the world may believe. Uh, if the invisibility of the church suffices for the unity of the church, then how how is an unbeliever who has no eyes of faith to be able to recognize that? Hmm. Um, so I, I think one of the reasons ecumenism is very dear to my heart, and I apologize, I know that for some Orthodox people <laughs> ecumenism is a dirty word, but the desire to call to find ways for Christians to find each other, to recognize each other as brothers and sisters in Christ, and by embracing each other in love across the differences that do separate us, that's for me that's extremely important. Something we need to do uh, for the cause of the gospel. Mm-hmm. Um, with regard to apostolic succession, I, I think what happened in the West, at least, is as, as Heiko Oberman, uh, a scholar, argued a, a couple of decades ago or more, is that what what was originally united got separated in, in Western Christian teaching, so that you have an, uh, 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 an apostolic succession in office, 
versus an apostolic session in teaching, what he inelegantly called Tradition One and Tradition Two. In the ancient church, they were one. What seemed to happen in the West is that they got bifurcated or got divided so that there was an official kind of Episcopal structure that didn't necessarily include teaching. And I think that's not served us, served us well, but it helps to, helps to account for the problem with apostolic succession. Mm. For myself, and at least for the historic traditions of Protestantism, we want to claim that we're standing in continuity with the history of the Church, but uh, in its teaching. Uh, but the Episcopal structure obviously has fallen away. Mm. Let me just follow up. Let me follow up on that with uh, with uh, Brad Nassif. Brad, is is there in your extensive reading and work on the uh, Church Fathers, is there any distinction made that you're aware of, and can you quote whom if it is, that would make the distinction between an invisible Church and a visible Church prior to the Reformation, that is in the Church Fathers? That was a big issue for the Reformers in terms of um, both... Um, affirming their continuity, but at the same time breaking from the Roman Catholic Church. Is there any, is there any distinction made in the Church Fathers on the invisible versus the visible Church? Well, I would say there's a distinction without a difference. Uh, the Church Fathers do talk about the saints on earth, and uh, I mean, I should say they, the Church Fathers speak of, in the liturgical life, there's obviously communion with the saints in heaven. Uh, but the vocabulary is not prominent, if at all even present, in the mind of the fathers, because the church, whether it's here on earth or in heaven, is still one. Is church. one. Yeah, okay. so I don't, right. I don't see this. Is that. Okay. Joseph, thank you very much for the question. A good one. Appreciate it. Thanks so much for holding. And uh, I have a call, but I'm going to have to ask uh, Justin from Orlando to hold. We're going to take a break, then I will come back, and we'll take Justin from Orlando's call and continue on what is a very, very fascinating conversation. The numbers are one eight five five af radio one eight five five two three seven two three four six. We're speaking about the Church Fathers and the uh, different understandings of their work. Ancient Faith Today with Kevin Allen will be back in a moment. In the meantime, we invite your calls at 1-855-AF-RADIO. That's 1-855-237-2346. We're going to go right to the phones tonight. We've got a call from Texas. Uh, Phil, welcome to the program. Do you have a question about orthodoxy or the Bible that you've always wondered about? Announcing Orthodoxy Live with Father Evan Armitas on the first and third Sundays of every month. Father Evan will be available to talk with you live on AFR's latest new call-in program. Questions and answers on any subject related to our faith as Orthodox Christians. Do our patron saints choose us or do we choose them? Orthodoxy Live with Father Evan Armitas. Listen and call in on the first and third Sundays of each month at 8 Eastern, 7 Central on the talk station of Ancient Faith Radio. Thanks for your call, John. Every monastery exudes the scent of holiness, but women's monasteries have their own special flavor. 
Join Constantina Palmer in her new book, The Scent of Holiness, as she makes frequent pilgrimages to a women's monastery in Greece and absorbs the nuns' particular approach to their spiritual life. Do you have any advice for someone who is preparing to visit a monastery for the first time? I guess I would say to be careful to trust yourself and your thoughts, especially when they lead in a negative direction. You know, when we go to monasteries, we should expect that there are things that we may see or hear that will bother us or that we won't like because, as the fathers say, you know, the old man can react to certain things. We may experience a sort of spiritual culture shock, let's say. But it's really important for us to try to be humble and to keep an open mind. And it's a lot harder than we think it is to do this, but it's super important for us to to try to do that. If you're a woman who's read of Mount Athos and long to partake of its grace-filled atmosphere, this book is for you. Men who wish to understand how women's spirituality differs from their own will find it a fascinating read as well. The Scent of Holiness, available now at conciliarpress.com. That's conciliarpress.com. Lines are open for your call. The number is 1-855-AF-RADIO. That's 1-855-237-2346. Here once again is Kevin Allen. Welcome back to Ancient Faith Today. My guests this evening are James R. Payton, Jr., a Reformed patristic scholar, and Bradley Nassif, an Orthodox patristic scholar, both uh, writers on the subject of historians, theologians. And uh, I have a call from Justin from Orlando. Justin's been holding for about 13 minutes. Thanks very much for holding, Justin. Good evening. Good evening, and thank you for taking my call. Sure. Uh, I have a question for your guests about uh, the development of doctrine. Uh, It seems to me, and I'm kind of curious if there's any such notion in the Fathers, because it seems that there are uh, good examples of doctrinal development if you look at, for instance, uh, the development of Christology, the hypostatic union, uh, the doctrine of the Trinity. I mean, if you're looking at, uh, say, St. Justin Martyr, uh, Logos theology developing uh, through uh, up into the hypostatic union and the conciliar definitions, there seem to be good examples of development of doctrine. And yet there are instances where uh, it's not quite as clear if you take, for instance, uh, the view that Mary was sinless. Uh, some of the Church Fathers seem to accept that, like uh, Augustine and Ambrose seem to accept that, but then Irenaeus, uh, Justin Martyr, Origen, uh, Cliff Alexandria, and others uh, seem to reject that idea. And then furthermore, uh, when you look at the New Testament structure, there seems to be uh, a structure of you know, uh, bishops and presbyters were the same thing in the New Testament, and and then there was deacons. So there was this twofold structure of church uh, hierarchy as opposed to a threefold uh, structure. And then, there, and then there's some uh, scholars like uh, like uh, David Paulson who uh, who have argued that there are some uh, Christians in the early uh, early ages of the church who believed that God had a body, that he was corporeal, and they point to Origen and Justin Martyr and uh, Augustine as uh, pointing out, like Augustine used to think that uh, when he was growing up under his mother who was a Christian, that God had a body. 
and Origen and Justin Martyr both point out that there were Christians at his time that thought that God had a body. So I'm just curious about those uh, elements of doctrine and those seeming uh, uh, difficulties, too, that exist in the tradition. Yeah, that's a good question, because the issue of, tr- of doctrine of development bears on that which came after both the patristic era and, you know, uh, later after uh, East and West split. So uh, uh, who Absolutely. would like to respond to that one first? I'll, I'll defer to Brad first, and I may have something to say later. Okay. Right. Brad? Well, I think you raise good questions. Uh, you point out to the uh, potential change in the office of priests and b- bishops, I should say, in the New Testament, or the absence thereof, and then the presence of it in the second century and all that. Um, and then you mentioned uh, Chalcedon and the development of doctrine there. Each of these has their own answers, uh, Justin, so I uh, will try to give you the shortest answer I can. Uh, with regard, uh, first of all, let me say that in the Orthodox tradition, there is a development of clarity, but not a development of content. By that I mean uh, the Church, as it moved, especially after uh, after Constantine, and uh, you look at what happened in Nicaea and the other ecumenical councils, the Church had to move from the language of confession, which was pretty simple to say, to affirm that Jesus is the Son of God, it had to move from the language of confession to the language of reflection. And uh, that's where the uh, clarification of the Church's confession was basically worked out. Now, does that mean there's a change of doctrine? Does that mean there is new revelation that was given to the Church in the 4th and 5th centuries? I don't think so. I think it's more of an issue of clarity. Now, when it comes to the development of bishops uh, in the 2nd century, that's that's a uh, you know in the you look at the New Testament and compare the last book of the New Testament Revelation with the writings of Saint uh, Saint Ignatius for example there you will find uh, perhaps uh, not the development I I personally don't think that you really have a clear statement in the New Testament that bishops uh, as we know them today existed I know that some Orthodox like to read it that way but uh, frankly I just I just don't see it and I don't think other Orthodox have as well. But the, what you do have is that uh, you have the, if you trace the development of the episcopate in the first uh, in the New Testament period, clearly by the time you get to the pastoral epistles, First Timothy, Second Timothy, and Titus, you have the church moving toward a what was later called uh, one bishop in one place, the so-called monarchical episcopate. Then we have nothing too much at all until Ignatius comes along, and his writings, dating uh, perhaps at 110, maybe even earlier, uh, he gives clear evidence that bishop that ev- that um, that uh, bishops are there. So how do you explain this? And scholars have done have have offered explanations in a variety of ways, uh, and I think the greatest, uh, the simplest explanation that we see is that there was no outcry in the second century to what Ignatius was referring to. We have, in other words, no protest that that bishops are a departure or an innovation or a development of a new idea by St. Ignatius. Rather, I think what you have in Ignatius is what is already happening in the New Testament, that is, moving from a, a synagogue form of worship uh, into the into what became known as the monar- as, as one bishop in one place, and of course, finally, I would say all that goes back to the Eucharist. In other words, it's inherent uh, 
in the logic of the of the Eucharist to have one bishop in one location expressing the one faith. So there are structures of unity that are centered in the local community around the Eucharist with the bishop presiding and in communion with fellow bishops. And, and if I can join in that, Kevin, uh, I know from my training when I was studying church history and, and working toward my, do, my doctorate and so on, um, I, I was... I became familiar with this idea of the development of doctrine as it, as it has been articulated in West Christianity. But when I started to look at the Church Fathers, and when I found out about the, the Orthodox tradition on this, I became very impressed with the strength of what, what Brad was just describing, that, that what, what happens is not an, an addition to or an expansion of doctrine, but a clarification in terminology by which to to carry the the work of confession uh, confessing the faith into uh into statements that that could be held forth against uh, against heresies so i think the idea of a development of doctrine as uh as bradley Braz has described it is something i'm 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 drawn to and i communicate in my own classes as well that um what what we have is is rather not rather than doctrine developing uh, and getting bigger as much as just getting more pre- more precise in terminology. But the, the original faith was there and would be recognizable by the apostles. And we're going to be talking a little bit later, Justin, so you'll want to hang on uh, about some of the, uh, the, the developments in doctrine that I think changed and, and weren't necessarily clarifications, and we'll see how Jim and Bradley respond to that. As we as we get going, but uh, I've got to let you go now. I've got several people uh, calling. Thanks, Justin from Orlando. Appreciate the call very much. Thank you very much. You're very welcome. Thanks for calling. Hope you continue to listen. Uh, we have another call. We have Miles from San Diego. He's been waiting on the line for about six minutes. Miles, how are you this evening? Miles, are you there? Miles. Okay, why don't we take Ariel from San Diego. Ariel, are you there? Do we have Ariel from San Diego? Hello? Who do we have here? Is this Miles? This is is Miles. Okay, Miles, sorry. Miles from San Diego, welcome. What's your question, please? Okay, my question, and I'm sorry if it's very similar to um, some previous. Um, It's kind of a two-part question. Um, Go ahead. Okay, uh, producers, let's drop that call. I, I can't hear anything on this end. Let's uh, take Ariel from San Diego, please. Okay. Ariel, are you there? Is Ariel from San Diego on the line? Okay, she's not. Let me follow up with uh, Jim Payton. Jim, um, the church fathers are usually uh, divided into subcategories, you know, based on periods within the patristic era era from you know the first to the seventh centuries when they wrote could you uh, briefly identify these these categories of time uh so that we could understand them you know in kind of patristic terms so when people hear them they'll sort of be able to identify which patristic era we're talking about right okay um the, the, a common way of defi- dividing them, there may be others, but one that's become very common is to distinguish between the anti-Nicene, that is pre-Nicaea fathers, before the Council of Nicaea in 325, and then the, uh, 
contra- contrast that with the Nicene and post-Nicene fathers. That is, the, the fathers that wrote around the time of the Council of Nicaea in 325, and then subsequently the post-Nicene. Uh, 325 being the great turning point in that the emperor has, has, uh, has come to favor Christianity, persecution has been lifted, Mm. And uh, certainly, the, the fortunes of the church were dramatically tr- transformed uh, through that through that change. The Antonicene fathers, so the ones before Nicaea, would include the Apostolic fathers, some of whom knew and worked with the, uh, mm. the apostles. Uh, then, what are called the apologists, uh, the, those who wrote defenses of uh, the Christian faith for for the surrounding world, and, and others uh, who were. Other others who wrote, and you know, for the church as well. So some of the some of those figures would be Clement of Rome, uh, in the Apostolic Fathers, um, uh, Ignatius of Antioch, who's been mentioned, Polycarp, uh, the Didache belongs in that period. Among the apologists, Justin Martyr and, and Theophilus of Antioch, and then Irenaeus, of course, is a brilliant theologian and uh, Tertullian in the West. Um, for the Nicene and post-Nicene Fathers, among the Nicene would be Athanasius, of course, preeminently with his with the Cappadocians, Basil of Caesarea, Gregory the Theologian, Gregory Nazianzen, and Gregory of Nyssa, John Chrysostom after them, and then subsequently you could refer to Jerome in the West, Augustine of Hippo, um, uh, Maximus Confessor, the Confessor, and John of Damascus. So those are handy ways that have been used in the past to, to distinguish among the Church Fathers in the periods in which they wrote. Let me do a quick follow-up with you, Jim Payton. Um, you know, you mentioned the Apostolic Fathers, those that were the earliest of the writers that, uh, you know, uh, knew the Apostles like uh, St. We, we would call them St. Polycarp. Um, mm-hmm. um, how were they regarded by the early Church? For example, you know, in Nicene and the post-Nicene days, were they considered even more you know, elevated in their work and their writing and their in their apostolicity because they were directly in line with the uh, the apostles themselves. Uh, a couple of things in that regard, probably, but it's hard to know for sure because the references mm. to them are not great, uh, not numerous. Uh, with, with the ongoing develop, development of the church's struggles and with with heresy, as as well as articulating the faith, uh, there were references to other church fathers. I would expect. Uh, and perhaps Brad knows this better, that there would be references to them. But the Apostolic Fathers ended up kind of dropping from the scene as far as references by about the 5th or 6th century, at least uh, from what I've been able to read, and, and it was quite a while before their works were rediscovered and reemphasized. Uh, that said, a couple of the works of, that are now considered among the Apostolic Fathers were at least considered for a time as possible candidates for the New Testament canon, including... Clement of Rome's letter to the to the, uh, to the Philippians and um, the Shepherd of Hermas were both, for a while, by some people mm. considered to be worthy of inclu- being included in the New Testament canon. Mm. Brad, do you want to weigh in on that, or do you want? Shall we take our next call? Take the next call. Okay, great. I've got Ariel from San Diego. Ariel, you're back. Uh, hope your phone's working. How are you? I'm doing great. How about you? Good, I'm doing fine. Thanks for holding. Thanks for calling back. Uh, what's your question, please? Well, um, I'd like Dr. Bradley Nassif and, and your other guests as well um, to comment on the fact that um, I've learned before that Jefferson is an Orthodox saint or an Orthodox father. I mean, everything they said or wrote was as tradition or by the Orthodox Church. And mm-hmm. like, I'm specifically thinking of people like Origen, who later became a, her- a heretical 
uh, person, but still said good things in his earlier writings, as opposed to, like, St. Gregory of Nyssa, who was a saint recognized by the Orthodox Church, but also taught universal salvation. Okay, that's a fair question. Brad, why don't you take uh, that one? How do we reconcile some of the people that are included in the corpus that would be referred to as the Church Fathers who had, you know, issues that, uh, you know, are somewhat troublesome and problematic? Well, um, I always think we should be charitable and loving and kind, especially to the dead. <laughs> I would say origin, uh, origin and, and Gregory of Nyssa, especially on these areas. Uh, the first thing to say is that uh, just because a theologian is ranked among the fathers of the church doesn't mean that they are a father. Uh, origin, as you point out, is is uh, is not a father of the church, but he is certainly the father of theology. You can't understand the Eastern Church apart from Origen, at least in its later developments. There's no way. Origen became the uh, most widely read person and most influential person all throughout the 4th century. He was influential in Athanasius's writings. He was influential in the great, especially the great Cappadocian fathers, all drank from the well of Origen. Uh, so when the church, when you study the church fathers, it doesn't mean that we are limited just to those orthodox people, but also the great thinkers of the period that influenced the later orthodox fathers. Um, so Origen, I think, and, and also Gregory of Nyssa to a certain extent, his doctrine, Nyssa's doctrine of, of universal salvation, uh, was rejected, both Origen and Originists and uh, the doctrine of uh, the apocatastasis ton pantom, the universal... Universal salvation, restoration right. ...restoration of all. That uh, was rejected in 553 by the Fifth Ecumenical Council. And so we, the Church nevertheless remembered St. Gregory uh, and recognized him as a saint, but more or less dropped out that particular aspect mm. of his thought. Mm. Origen, on the other hand, of course, had so many other problems from the later church's point of view. But in fairness to Origen, Origen himself said that if I am teaching anything that is not consistent with the teaching of the church, you should go with the teaching of the church and not me. And so we must always remember that with Origen and uh, and uh, be charitable toward him, especially since he was condemned 300 years after he died and he had no direct opportunity to recant. Mm. Oh. Ariel, thanks right. for your question. Appreciate it. Do you have a follow-up? Well, um, I, I guess my other just follow-up on that was just, uh, is that where Orthodox tradition, a, a big key tradition, comes in? Like, So if there are teachings that one church father like, don't necessarily sink in with the rest of the Orthodox tradition, is that where big key tradition comes in? Yes, it is. Yeah, the, the voice of the whole outvoice, outweighs the voice of the one. So, so would it be fair to say then, as a follow-up to uh, Ariel's excellent follow-up, that we Orthodox don't regard every writing of every church father as part of the capital T tradition? And we, do we consider the work of the church fathers in any way as infallible? I'll let Jim say, and then I'll re be happy to comment. Okay. Okay. <laughs> uh, from a Protestant perspective, we would not say that the Church Fathers uh, are infallible. Well, I'm um, surprised to hear you say that. 
But we, we would recognize the kind of thing that Ariel has raised, you know, and that Brad has explained as well, the mm. kind of comments that that, or, that Origin made and Gregor of Nyssa and, and that sort of thing. So, uh, yeah, I'll turn to Brad for the other part of the answer, though. Well, I would say the Orthodox agree uh, with, uh, with the Reformers on this point. It's very clear that uh, the Church Fathers are not infallible uh, in everything that mm. they said. I remember one of my dogmatics professors at St. Vladimir's many years ago, the, the late uh, Serge Verhofsky, he was a lay theologian um, like myself, and he, he made this comment in class. He said in his Russian accent, he said, My dear, he says, the Holy Fathers are not Holy Spirits. <laughs> and by that he meant everybody has their mistakes in their writing. And just because they wrote it doesn't mean that it's gospel. Mm. In fact, uh, you could even say, I heard uh, one of my one of the professors, I was at a Orthodox and Evangelical conference in, in Albania in September, sponsored by the Lausanne Commission. And one of the Orthodox theologians there, Father John, Johan Sauka, who teaches at the uh, Ecumenical Institute in, in Basse, he even offers a course on the heresies of the fathers. Now that shocked me. Hmm. He, he went through and showed how all the different fathers have something that is in their writings that is not consistent with later or even contemporary Orthodox hmm. thought. So it's a real misreading of the fathers to think that uh, everything they said is infallible. Now then, how do you know? Well, it takes discernment and, frankly, hmm. a lot of practice to and knowing the mind of the church where they went one way or the other. Great. Thanks, Ariel. Appreciate your questions. Got to let you go. Got to keep those lines open. Thanks for calling. Thanks for listening. You're very welcome. And we're speaking with James R. Payton, Jr., a Reformed patristic scholar. We're talking with Bradley Nassif, an Orthodox patristic scholar on perspectives of the Church Fathers. The numbers are one eight five five af radio one eight five five two three seven two three four six. And Miles from San Diego is back. Miles, I hope, hopefully we can hear you this time. Good evening. Good evening. Hi. Hi, Miles. Uh, what's your question, please? Okay, my question is: um, there's there's writings like in Saint Ignatius um, early on, where before he was going to be martyred, um, he said something along the lines about how um, "Don't hinder me from being martyred, for I'm, I'm finally going to become human." Yes. Um, and there seems to be this common thought in in the patristics that. Um, our our good deeds, our work, our life, um, the asceticism of the Orthodox Church was actually a, a real participation in, in um, like you kind of stated earlier, of becoming um, becoming righteous, actually being declared righteous, but like becoming, like participating in becoming a new creature. And I was wondering, kind of, um, growing up Protestant, I didn't ever really get that emphasis. Um, like good works were kind of like a, they were they were re, a response of love to the love of God, and really all they did was kind of uh, they showed obedience and made life better. But there was no sense of um, preparing for eternity with God. It was just kind of like this is what you do as a Christian because Christ said so. And so I, it kind of felt a little bit um, hopeless. And I was just wondering, like maybe I'm misunderstanding or misinterpreting, but. Um, I just kind of wanted to hear some thoughts on, on the patristics like that, like St. John Cabalus, who says uh, something along the lines of, what good would it be to get to heaven and not have 
the eyes to see the beauty and the ears and the and the scent and mm. and all the senses to understand it. Um, did, does the Protestant Church really? Um, is there really a lack of that, or was that just kind of maybe what culture I grew up in? Jim, why don't you respond to that one then, Brad? You can jump in sure. for that. I, I think certainly uh, when Protestantism is well presented, when it's not just kind of a bare bones, you know, just believe and everything will be fine approach that, that sometimes is degenerated into with some in some circles. Uh, there's a strong emphasis in Lutheran and Reformed traditions alike, certainly Anglican as well, uh, of the necessity of growing in grace, the, the distinction from justification called sanctification. However, that said... I don't think that within the, the within the Protestant traditions we've ended up articulating it with nearly the clarity and insight that it, that it has that it's that it's found uh, in the Orthodox tradition of building on the Church Fathers the the kind of thing that you mentioned uh, as far as preparing us you know by our living by our loving by our serving uh, actually to encounter Christ, to encounter God to to meet with God in, in eternity. Um, I, I haven't sensed that kind of clarity it's as much as this is what we should do, let's do it to the glory of God, let's become more holy, that's what sanctification means, and then that will be completed on the final day uh, when, mm. uh, when, when Christ returns. So I don't, think it has the, I don't think it has had, typically, the kind of focus and sharpness of preparation that, that you find articulated mm. in what you just said. Let me just follow up on Miles' question, um, Jim Payton. Um, would not an acknowledgement of a participation in God in such a way that, um, you know, uh, wouldn't that sort of expansion of the concept of sanctification, you know, run uh, counter to the, uh, again, the hinge upon which uh, the Christian faith, according to the Reformers, is hinged, which is justification by faith? Isn't this one of the reasons why you haven't seen it? Although, as you know, there are some, uh, especially some uh, Finnish scholars, I believe, who are making references to the idea of, say, theosis in the Reformers' works like Luther, etc. Maybe you could respond to that one. Yeah, that, that's been a growing area of discussion um, right. between in, in Finland between the Lutherans who are there and the Finnish Orthodox Church as well. And so they've had... Right natural opportunity for interaction with some very stimulating uh, insights and discussions. Luther is, is often much richer uh, than, than sometimes he's been made to be in, in the Protestant tradition as far as the, the potential in his thought, because it was so fertile um, in, in many ways. And, and uh, so he, he did seem to have more room for this than, than has been articulated in, right. in uh, Protestant tradition commonly. Yeah, 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 I, I agree. Miles, curious, have you read Father John Baer's new book called Becoming Human? It sounded like uh, you might have read that book. Uh, no, I haven't read that book. Um, I've actually... Because um, he writes a, about a that, of, yeah. I've heard a couple of his lectures, but I've also read through... Okay. Um, through gotcha. St. Ignatius and a couple of right. other random snippets. So. Right, right. I, I was just curious, because we're going to have yeah. him on in December. We're going to talk specifically about that uh, subject. So thanks very much, Miles. Appreciate your call. Could Thank they... you very much. Okay. Sure, go ahead, Brad. You can, you can respond, though, if you like. Yeah, you know, I think Miles will listen. Really, I really think this is an important subject on the role of faith and works in the Orthodox tradition. So I do want to say just a word about it. Please, um, I do. I do think that when orthodoxy is well understood, 
that we will recognize in the theological tradition that salvation is understood in three tenses, past, present, and future. That is, I have been saved at the time of one's baptism through faith in the community by grace. I have been saved. I am being saved uh, here and now as we live the Christian life, and I will be saved in the age to come after I die and and uh, I'm with the Lord. So these three tenses of salvation are important. And I think that the quote that uh, Miles was referring to in St. Ignatius, most and as well as most of the all of most of the church fathers and the spiritual writers of our church who speak of these good deeds as being part of becoming a new create creature, uh, it falls under the second category of being saved. In other words, as you were saying, Kevin, about theosis and divinization, that's where it belongs. Uh, not in the first category of being uh, that I have been saved in baptism. Uh, we often, I think this is what contributes to misunderstanding between Orthodox and Reformed or any evangelical people today. The Orthodox don't know, are not aware of our own theological distinctions in these areas. Uh, and I think if we make those distinctions clear, past, present, and future, that many of the statements that we think that somehow, you know, we become born again over a long period of time is just bad theology. It's uh, it's at baptism where we receive the new birth. It's an event. It's an entrance into the life of Christ. It's a life-changing event. But after that happens, you have a whole lifetime of repentance and, and uh, humility and all the spiritual and ascetic virtues that we work on. So I think if we make those distinctions and put it in there, we'll get it right. Uh, the last thing I would say, the best writing on salvation by faith and grace and not by our own good deeds. We, The Orthodox tradition is very clear that we cannot save ourselves. There's no merit that we can do to save ourselves. And I think the best writing on this is by St. Mark the Ascetic, a 4th century monk. And his writing is in Volume 1 of the Philokalia and it's titled, On Those Who Think They Are Made Righteous by Works. Mm. And uh, that title, I encourage you to read it, and then I have written an essay on it in the book I co-edited uh, this last year uh, with Oxford University, and it's titled, The Philokalia, a Classic Text in Orthodox, in Orthodox Spirituality. And I have a chapter on that, on that particular essay by St. Mark, and I really want it to be well-known it's one of those buried, beautiful texts of the Church Fathers of the Christian East that really needs to be read and talked about today, on those who think they are made righteous by works by St. Mm. Mark the Aesthetic. Thanks for that, Brad. appreciate that very much. Miles, thanks for your call. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening. Thank you so well, much. I'll, I'll look those up. <laughs> sounds good. Thank you. And we're going to take a break, short break, come right back. My guests are James R. Payton Jr. and Brad Nassif, and I'm going to ask Brad Nassif uh, about the Eastern Greek and Western or Latin Church Fathers. Ancient Faith Today with Kevin Allen will be back in a moment. In the meantime, we invite your calls at 1-855-AF-RADIO. That's 1-855-237-2346. Introducing A Patristic Treasury, published by Ancient Faith Publishing. The writings of the Church Fathers are regularly lauded, but rarely read, partly because their sheer volume is so daunting. Yet they constitute the first story of the Christian faith, 
built upon its apostolic foundation, which we ignore at our peril. Patristic scholar James Payton has made the Fathers easily accessible by selecting passages that are devotionally stimulating, doctrinally thought-provoking, or epigrammatically striking. With his help, the average Christian can find stimulation, comfort, challenge, and inspiration in the Church Fathers. That's A Patristic Treasury, available at store.ancientfaith.com. store.ancientfaith.com. are open for your call. The number is 1-855-AF-RADIO. That's 1-855-237-2346. Here once again is Kevin Allen. Welcome back to Ancient Faith Today. We're on the last uh, inning of our game, so to speak, but we are going to go for a full two hours tonight, so we have yet a half an hour left, and I probably have three hours worth of questions, but we're not going to get to all of them. Uh, my guests are, again, James Payton and Brad Nassip. Brad, um, briefly, there were Eastern or Greek church fathers and Western or Latin church fathers. Give us a few of the best known, in your opinion, of the Greek church fathers and um, Jim Payton, I'll come back to you and ask you to give us uh, a, a few of the best-known Latin church fathers. Okay, the best Greek-known uh, Greek fathers would be St. Athanasius, uh, the Cappadocian fathers, Basil the Great, Gregory Nazianzus, Gregory of Nyssa, John Chrysostom, most eminently is the great uh, preacher of all in the Byzantine church, mm. Cyril of Alexandria would be another, and then, of course, uh, Maximus the Confessor, John of Damascus, Simeon the New Theologian, and Gregory Palamas. Okay. Uh, if you didn't get those names uh, and would be interested, email me. I will get you the list and refer you to uh, Jim Payton's uh, book, and we you can you can check them out. Jim, give give us the name of the you know of course Augustine or Augustine, however it's pronounced correctly, comes to mind. Are there other Latin Church Fathers of note that you would uh, put up there? Um, well, Augustine is certainly far and away the most influential of the Church Fathers for Western Christianity, but others among them would be Tertullian and Cyprian, writing in the in the 200s, uh, Tertullian in the late 100s and 200s. Um, they, they preeminently... Uh, Jerome is very important, but for, for a variety of reasons, mostly the translation of the Bible into, into, uh, into Latin. Right. So Augustine of Hippo. Um, and then probably after that, there... It fades a bit. Leo the First, Leo the Great as Pope uh, was significant as a theologian as well, and, and eventually Gregory the Great, Gregory the First uh, okay. as Pope uh, was influential. Brad, let me let me follow up on that. Um, uh, you know, Augustine. Um, we we refer to him as Blessed Augustine of Hippo is the most influential theologian in Western Christianity, as Jim Payton pointed out, and as you, of course, know. Yet his theological influence as a church father, you know, is often minimized, even derogated by some. I'm referring to people like Father John Romanides, especially, uh, in the Eastern Orthodox tradition. Without going into all of his theological trajectory, why is that? Well, um, I think, uh, first of all, he, it is debated whether he's a saint or not, but I would say the great, uh, the great uh, side of the tradition is recognizing St. Augustine as a saint, not just the blessed. So I know my, my own patristics teacher, Father, the late Father John Meyendorf, certainly regarded St. Augustine as a, hmm. as, a, as a saint. 
So to call him not, I think, is a misnaming. Okay. Uh, but the, the the controversial aspects of uh, uh, Augustine's theology, his name is pronounced Augustino, so you'll hear it Augustine or uh, Augustine, and there's no right or wrong way to that, but I just prefer Augustino following his original name. There are a couple of doctrinal issues in him. Um, original sin, for example, uh, St. Augustine taught that people inherit guilt. The Orthodox tradition, the predominance of the Greek tradition, uh, does not in believe in inherited guilt. We believe in uh, uh, what we would, we would call original sin, but not the inheritance of guilt. Um, another issue would be the filioque, although that in itself is a debated issue, and St. Augustine always did believe in the primacy, or the priority, I should say, of the Father within the life of the Trinity. So, uh, But the filioque, which was a phrase added to the Nicene Creed, and we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father, the Latin Church added, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, filioque. Uh, or Augustine had something to do with that, but more it was at the Council of Orange and in Spain in, in the 6th century. Hmm. The third area of Augustine's uh, controversial teaching is in his doctrine of predestination and whether or not people are predestined uh, apart from their, um, uh, solely by God or whether people have anything to do with it. Which, of course, was amplified in the, in the work of uh, John Calvin in the Reformed tradition. That's right. right. That's right. Yeah. I would yeah. also add, if I may go back, uh, Kevin, you asked for Greek and Latin, Greek and Latin fathers. There's another area of patristics today that people yes, are please. not aware of, but the scholars are very aware of it. It's what we what we refer to as Oriental Oriental patristics or Eastern beyond just the Greek and Latin tradition. For example, you have Syriac uh, church fathers from the fourth to the thirteenth centuries. Then you have Coptic, which is Egyptian literature. Armenian fathers, Georgian scholars, uh, fathers, and especially the Arabic fathers from the 8th to the 14th centuries, and non-Chalcedonian fathers, for example, the Ethiopic uh, fathers are there. So these are, we're used to thinking in Greek and Latin, but in reality it's much more complex than that. Yes. Jim Payton... But I will um, say this, mm, the Greek tradition did have, the Greek tradition really, though, uh, is the most theologically influential. Yes. Uh, Jim Payton, let me ask you this. You said in your introduction of your book, uh, A Patristic Treasury, quote, there is recent patristic scholarship that has stressed the divergences within Christian antiquity. And, and of course, you know, today we, especially from, from we converts, we, we make big distinctions between Eastern and Western Christianity and so on. Um, how much of that distinction showed up in your reading of the church fathers? That is, we, we obviously heard some of this just now from Brad in terms of the influence of uh, Blessed or Saint Augustine or Augustine um, in terms of how it shaped Western thinking later on. Do you find any other early church fathers and distinctive you know, differences in style, approach, emphasis, metaphors, interpretations early on, you know, that would, for an example, differentiate the West's tendency to focus on juridical or legal aspects of 
of of the atonement, you know, the forgiveness of sins, versus the East's attitude of more of a, of a participation in God and deification. Am I asking that question well, or I, I understand what you mean with it? Yeah. Um, okay. I, I think what what it what you have is is a developing um, articulation of the Christian faith in term you know, that that speaks to the cultural issues with. That were predominant in the, in the Latin West and in in the in the Hellenic East, or Hellenistic East, mm. where where the questions of the culture were different, and so the the emphases and responses uh, took on different hues. But I think that that developed slowly. Certainly, you you have with Tertullian uh, as a trained lawyer uh, a reflection of of the the concerns of of the Roman Empire with its emphasis on law and so on. Um, but you don't fi- have a particularly different view of, of the atonement or anything else uh, that, that I can see. It, those things, those things, seem to develop later on in the period, well, by Augustine or afterwards. And, and so I think it's 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 something that just as things unfold, especially after the collapse in the in the western part of the Roman Empire, owing to the the Germanic invasions. The two segments of Christianity were developing largely independently of each other because there was relatively little conversation and communication. And with that, you end up uh, finding a, a, a clearer set of distinctions later on than would probably have been the case uh, earlier on. I think in the in the early in the Antonicene period or the the uh, uh, the, the early part of the Nicene period, uh, people speaking to each other from either side would would just nod their heads and say, "Of course, of course," with agreement. But if I can pick up on on the thing with with Augustine um, that, that Brad mentioned, I think was very helpful. Um, in the past few years, as I've taught this church history course, using the the course pack that eventually resulted in an expanded form in this in this book of Patristic Treasury, uh, several of my gifted students would, when we got to Augustine, would say, "He's doing something different." Than the others, he's got more confidence in human reason to figure out some of these things that the others said couldn't be figured out. Mm. And I, I think they've picked up on something. Now, maybe that's because I've picked up on it, and so those are the things I've excerpted. But I, I, in Augustine, there's a confidence in human reason to try to explain predestination, grace, and free will, mm. which had never been pursued vigorously by any of the church fathers before. And I think that pattern. Um, with Augustine's great influence in his confidence in sanctified human reason, ended up taking on kind of a life of its own in this separated Western communion that eventually becomes Western Christianity, such that we have uh, great confidence. And we've ended up with in, in Western Christianity with arguments about how to explain, in quotes, the, the sacraments of baptism, the Lord's Supper, predestination, grace, and free will. And I think... Uh, if we don't want to say Augustine's to blame for that, Augustine introduced that in a ways that ended up becoming very influential, influential in the West. Mm. But I think no matter what, Augustine is unquestionably a religious genius, uh, and the works that he ended up articulating are just profoundly moving, uh, even if at times you scratch your head and say, I don't know that that's the wisest thing to try to puzzle out. Yeah, and, and I'm not I'm not Augustine bashing. I was just uh, curious, and, and that's 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 so that that's really interesting. I, I've always heard that Augustine was kind of the first church father that emphasized uh, human reason, and he was a brilliant, brilliant man, obviously, and and that seems to be the trajectory on which scholasticism, Thomas Aquinas, and you know modern uh, theological and even evangelical 
thinking has has moved is is again and and you know th- there's been a reaction against that as you know jim payton i mean there are a lot mm-hmm. of us that say you know what i'm tired of thinking about this stuff i want to experience god where do i do that that's right yeah, yeah so so you get then you get the charismatic groups that want to experience god and you, you know you get people that are looking for you know a a, a, a fuller deeper experience because we're tired of just thinking and talking about god so uh, at any rate well, it ends up becoming to such a pitch that with St. Anselm, uh, as he's called in the West, who, who lives in the, in the 11th century, he offers, you know, building on this trajectory that's developed out of Augustine, he offers to, to defend any and prove any point of the Christian faith without reference to Scripture or the Church Fathers just by using reason. Yeah, you well, may, yeah. that's inconceivable uh, for, the, for the Church Fathers hmm. to, to speak in that, in that kind of fashion. Right. But it's a trajectory that catches on in the West and, and picks up with scholasticism, and now we end up with 26,000 Protestant denominations. Thank you very much. Yeah, well, Gordon Cornwall Seminary actually says there are more than that, but I don't know where they get their, their research I, I, from. But uh, I know. The, the number is depressing no matter what. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, Brad Nassif, um, and then I'll follow up with one for Jim, too. You know, often it seems that evangelicals, if they don't hear or read something using the kind of language that they're used to hearing as an evangelical and kind of what I would call evangelical speak, which, by the way, we have orthodox speak, so it's not exclusive to evangelicals, but we all have our ways of understanding and our little buzzwords. But if evangelicals don't... um, hear that, they are apt to reject it. So my question is, is this a problem, and you teach at an evangelical uh, college, when reading the Church Fathers, and what do you recommend for evangelicals who want to read the Patristic Fathers? Well, I think um, you're right very much that uh, there is a different vocabulary that operates in the Eastern uh, tradition compared with contemporary evangelicalism. And the example I gave earlier about uh, the gentleman that asked the question about being about um, growing in, in, in the new creation, the past, present, and future tenses, I think. Those kinds of things really do need to be translated. So you almost have to be theologically bilingual to, be, to speak meaningfully yeah. to the other tradition. And honestly, that takes a lot of patience and a lot of experience and a lot of love because people, you know, it took me years to understand evangelicalism. I spent years in seminary and fellowship with their academics and have a very high regard for their intellectual heritage. They are they are not second class uh, in most cases today at least. They they had a gro- period of growth, but I have high regard for them. Hmm. So we do need to learn the theological vocabulary and the nuances uh, one attempt that I have at interfaces these that your readers might, your listeners might be interested in, is an essay I wrote titled "The Evangelical Theology of the Eastern Orthodox Church." Yeah, excellent it, article. Uh, it can be found in the book Three Views on Eastern Orthodoxy," yeah. edited by James Stamoulis. And then I have a follow-up article that I published last year uh, titled "Orthodox Spirituality." The Quest for a Transfigured Life, and that appears in a book titled Four Views of Christian Spirituality, edited by Bruce Demarest. Both, with, both of them are with Zondervan. 
Yeah, ex- excellent books, um, for sure. J- Jim Payton, you know, the Protestant evangelical approach seems to be to ask first what the Bible says, and, then, and only then, if at all, to ask what the church has said in the past. For Orthodox, it's, you know, as we've been discussing, it's more the other way around. So what's your recommended approach to evangelical and Protestant and Reformed readers of the patristic treasury that you've just recently uh, published with uh, Ancient Faith uh, Publishing? Well, recognizing that the people who are likely to read the book come at it with a faith perspective, and in many regards, it'll be, you know, uh, from from my background, the people will be from evangelical reformed heritage. I try to get them to, re- to recognize uh, to, that you can't expect the early church to address the questions that are perhaps predominant in our minds in the present day. We have to let them speak for who they were. But I said that can be that can be remarkably rich for us because the the, the, the church fathers can speak without the hesitation that arose in, in Protestant circles about the connection of faith and works or so many other issues, and to see. Uh, and to read the, the Church Fathers talking about faith working and faith serving and lo- loving and so on uh, without any kind of worry about this becoming meritorious um, it is refreshing and, and enables us to read Scripture afresh and anew again so that we're not kind of cutting things up and putting them in hermetically sealed boxes uh, the way there's a, there's a tendency to do that, I'm afraid, too often uh, in, in, in when we end up reading the... Um, uh, early church or, or any period of the history of the church, if they don't speak as we do, we have to try to step into the the, the way in which the the authors were writing at the time and seeing what the issues were that they were wrestling with. Hmm. You know, um, John Newman, I believe, said this. I don't. Uh, I, I've heard it said, but I, I don't have the quote in front of me. But it was along the lines of, and please don't take any offense to this. It's for the purpose of, of dialogue. He said, when one reads Christian history, one ceases to be Protestant. And, and that leads me to the aspect that I'd like to close on, not only with you, but with Brad jumping in as well. And that is, you know, for me personally, um, when I started to go back and question where I was, I was a crazy charismatic and all that sort of thing. And not, not so theologically um, um, grounded, nor do, nor do I think our, our particular church movement was particularly theologically grounded, and that was maybe one of the problems. But you go back and you start looking at what the early church taught, and as some of our callers have pointed out, you know, you find a, a, a different Christian ethos. And mm-hmm. I wonder how you, as a Reformed Christian and a patristics scholar, you know, bridge that gap. I'm not trying to get personal. I'm not trying to make you defensive. I don't want you to to feel like you need to defend anything. I'm really asking the question, and we can talk about, you know, as as we close some of the different uh, things that that you will confront when you read the Church Fathers. Yeah, I I think Newman's quote was was something on the order of um, to be deeply into Church history is to cease to be a Protestant. Yes, that is right. Uh, Thank you. Yeah, but what were the exact words were? Uh, he was writing that as an ex-Anglican who'd come, who had right. embraced uh, the Roman Church in, in England. Uh, I think he was recognizing that in far too many ways, we in the, Pro- in the Protestant and Evangelical world have lost sight of the, the long heritage of the Church. I think that's easier to recognize in North America, where we're very unhistorical, by and large, in our approach mm-hmm. to life and, and to culture. We, we just kind of take what is for granted as if it were the furniture of the universe that's always been there. 
I, I think one of the things for me as a historian is to try to get people to think and recognize that we live in a historical situation, but it's not the historical situation that everybody has always had. And that's relatively easy to do in, in, in uh, university life. But then to try to help people recognize that there's been a vast history of the church uh, that to which we, in, in which we find ourselves as part, and then to embrace it, to profit from it, to live in it, and to recognize that sometimes they speak in different ways than we do, but our brothers and sisters in Christ from other eras or from other cultures in the present as well. And to try to be humble enough to recognize that others don't have to speak the way I do in order for me to recognize them as, as my as siblings in, in the family of faith, uh, and to learn from them. And where they challenge us to learn enough that we can speak better. Um, but I, I would differ then with, with Newman in that regard, that I, I think that uh, Protestants can be deeply into the history of the Church, but they, they won't go, go in with uh, flags waving and banners flying and trumpets blaring as much will go in as, as uh, those who need to learn and to profit and to grow from it. Mm. But what do you do when the doctrine you've been taught and mm-hmm. some of the practices that you have grown up with as at least one or maybe several of our callers mentioned tonight— are inconsistent with what you read in the earliest Christian writers, the the church fathers that we've been discussing. Um, you know, what do you do? Do you just say, "Well, the heck with it"? I'll just believe no, what I, I believe. I, but it's it's in- interesting to find out that they didn't believe what I believe, and they didn't practice the way I practice. And they did have bishops, and they did have liturgy, and they did believe in. The real presence of of of, uh, of Christ, and you know, so on. Mm-hmm. I, I think two things that can work in that regard. One is it can make us more alert to greater riches in the Protestant tradition than we have recognized. As I said earlier in the in the program, um, there is no Reformed or Lutheran confession that that denies the real presence of Christ. In fact, all of them affirm it uh, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, so that, you know, whatever may have become the practice and the way in which it's become common to speak or to think, uh, that, that, that often enough our own heritage is richer historically than we have believed. But in, in points where, indeed, the, the ancient church speaks in a different fashion, what I tell my students is, look, if you find the church fathers speaking in a different fashion than you've grown up with, what that at the very least should make you do is recognize there are other ways of speaking as Christians than you're familiar with, but it all should, should make you realize, am I in the minority, and if so, what should I do about it? Mm. Um, for example, on the question of free will and predestination, certainly in right. the Lutheran tradition it has been, but in the Reformed tradition, uh, the idea of predestination, grace, and free will has been articulated in certain ways that are simply not found. Uh, in the Church Fathers until you get to Augustine, and even then not fully developed in Augustine the way it becomes articulated in subsequent Reformed tradition. Well, how do you wrestle with that? Uh, can you right. start to put a, a duller shine on some of what you've, you've heard and, and learn to speak in ways that are more in keeping with the larger tradition of the history of the Church? And if that's the case, then you can work with others and appreciate others, but, but j- just try to live within the faith in a way that Emphasize, points to the, the larger tradition of the history of the Church uh, in, in great respect and, and, uh, and, and learn to be more cautious and humble uh, about what, in, in your own tradition, you, you find, in, as, whether it's Baptist or 
Presbyterian or Reformed or whatever it may be. Okay. Brad, let me close with this one. Um, you know, one of the last church fathers, or you wouldn't call him last, but but he's often thought of as being last, St. John of Damascene wrote, quote, let us stand on the rock of faith and the tradition of the church, not giving room to those who wish to introduce novelties. Would it be fair to say or unfair to say that some of the doctrines that have developed, uh, you know, lately and since the Reformation, you know, uh, and, and on the Christian scene today would have to be called novelties in the context of his definition. There's no doubt that that would be the case, Kevin. <clears throat> um, I think the best way to wrap up the, the conversation here in comparing orthodoxy with the uh, evangelical tradition, we have to distinguish evangelical Protestants from modern uh, modern Protestants, which is a totally different animal. Yes, uh, Jim Payton represents someone who the Orthodox would find as a friend and as a as a uh, very close brother in Christ. There's no doubt about that. That's very different than the kind of Protestantism you'll find in modern uh, modern theology today, at least certain branches. So that first needs to be acknowledged. But if I were to wrap it all up, I would say that uh, despite how close uh, we are to each other, uh, the fundamental reality is that there is no, there is a need for visible unity. Um, what we have in our Orthodox communities, compared with uh, the Reformed tradition, uh, particularly as well as the Lutheran, is that there is no visible unity between us. And this absence of visible unity is there because, from from an Orthodox point of view, there is there is an absence of full Catholicity in the Protestant tradition, uh, and that absence of full Catholicity is what accounts for our visible differences. What happens is we need to keep the great church, as the Orthodox have done, we need to keep the great church and the great tradition together. Uh, I like to compare it to the stem of a rose and the rose itself. Uh, Protestants in general, historic Protestants, and I'm really generalizing here, but in the context of our conversation, they go back to the early church, they like the doctrine, they appreciate the theological vision of the early church, but they reject, consciously or unconsciously, mostly consciously, the church to which that doctrine belongs. So, um, for example, they accept the Council of Nicaea, the theology of the Trinity, they accept the Council of Chalcedon, that's fine, that's the stem of the rose. But they take the scissors and cut the stem and want the doctrine without that which the stem points to. And right. the, ultimate, troublesome part. the ultimate goal, the ultimate source, the, the goal of the stem is to produce the flower, which is the church itself in its sacramental yeah. life. So I think that's a, the big issue. And we could we could go on for a long time with a conversation about that, and it might be a very interesting follow up, by the way. But unfortunately, we have hit our two hour mark, and I want to thank James R. Payton Jr. Thank you, number one, for being on tonight. Thank you for your work, your openness, and uh, uh, your new book, uh, Patristic Treasury. And uh, thanks for being on tonight, uh, Jim. Thank you. It's been a privilege. Uh, it's been our pleasure to have you, Brad Nassif. As always, great to have you on. Thanks so much for all your great work. Well, you're welcome, and a special thank you to Jim uh, Payton, and uh, it's a delight to have met you and to uh, share these few hours together with you. I hope there will be many more in the future. Agreed, for sure. 
And before we sign off tonight, the winner of our Legacy Icons drawing for a $55 gift certificate towards Legacy's vast collection is John from Maryland. John, email us at AFT at ancientfaith.com. We'll get you the uh, access code. Join me on November 10th on A Miracle of God, a conversation with Abbas Emiliani of the Sacred Monastery of St. Nina in Union Bridge, Maryland. She'll speak about her journey to orthodoxy, her miraculous rescue and recovery under entrapment of 60 tons of fallen skywalks at the Hyatt Regency Hotel in Kansas City in 1981 and about women's monasticism. Mother will be live to answer questions at the end of the program. Many thanks to our great production team this evening. Our engineer tonight, Bobby Maddox. Our producer, Troy Sabarin. Our call screener, Molly. Our chat room moderator, Father John Schrodel. And my production assistant, Jennifer Trenery. Please tune in next week at the same time for the live call-in program, Orthodoxy Live with Father Evan Armitas. Thanks, and have a great week.